The Dave Berta Podcast is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Locally grown, community supported. I'm Dave Cornway, and you're listening to the Dave Berta Podcast. We are recording this episode on October 17th, 2021, and I'm joined today, as always, by our producer, Adam Rosenhart. Hey, Adam. I'm good. How are you doing? Just it's, having some mic trouble. Is that is that you? That was me. I'm good. Okay. Now. Okay. Okay. Sounds good. Um, how are you doing, Adam? <laughs> I'm good. I'm uh, I'm excited and nervous about the municipal elections in Alberta tomorrow and the referenda, which we'll be talking about in this episode. Yeah, and the Senate election, the Senate nominee election, ah. the one the one that's really been on the top of everybody's mind, the one that everybody has been talking about at the virtual water coolers, on the street corners, in the coffee shops as they wait to pick up their coffee. We will talk about the Senate nominee election as well. And to kick off that conversation, to have that conversation today, I am thrilled to welcome Dr. Jared Wesley back to the podcast. Dr. Wesley, Jared is a Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Alberta. And uh, and he is uh, he's joining us today to chat about the municipal election, about uh, the, the stuff that will be on your ballot uh, when you show up to vote if you live in Alberta tomorrow on October 18th. Welcome to the podcast, Jared. Great to be back. Yeah. How are, how, how are you feeling about, uh, about uh, the ballot uh, tomorrow, about the municipal election day tomorrow? Um, well, I guess we'll, we'll know the results of the, of the mayoral and councillor and school trustee um, elections right away. I think a lot of us that have been studying the equalization referendum in particular are going to have to wait for another week before we have the mm-hmm. official results from Elections Alberta. So it'll be a two-part, a two-part event, if you will. It's going to, uh, it's going, it's going to be very, very exciting. It's like the, uh, it's like a, a double header that's spread out by a week, right? <laughs> or something like that. So we have. <laughs> it's just me and you and your listeners that will be <laughs> treating it like, like some kind of. Yes, the, the thousands of listeners who are, who are going to be pouring over the results and waiting in, in anticipation on, uh, uh, for the, uh, the results. I think they'll be released around the 26th, I think mm-hmm. is what they said. So, um, uh, as, as many listeners know, October 20, or, pardon me, October 18th is the municipal election in, in Alberta around the province. Um, voters will be going to the polls if they haven't already voted in the advance polls, which, you know, many people have already voted in the advance polls. Um, but you'll be electing your, you know, your local mayor, your local councillor, your local reeve, your local school board trustees, um, as well as uh, your local officials. You'll be handed, I guess, depending on what jurisdiction it is, but at least in Edmonton, where where I voted in the advance polls, there was a second ballot that was handed to me that had uh, my, oh, wait, no, there was a I'm trying to remember whether, whether this one, <laughs> there was a second ballot that was handed. Oh, yes, that had the Senate nominee candidates and the yes or no uh, question about equalization and about daylight savings time. So, uh, you know, if you're if you're if you don't know what to do with that, uh, that second ballot, we're going to talk a little bit about that today. Um, so, Jared, you've been involved in uh, I mean, I've been following I follow you on Twitter. You've been involved in a lot of discussions online. You wrote a um, uh, an op-ed with uh, with Ken Buzinkal about equalization and about the equalization referendum that uh, that is being um, uh, put in front of Albertans during this municipal election. I guess just if we could just start out in terms of explaining the equalization referendum, what is equalization? Well, yeah, and 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 full disclosure in that op-ed with Ken, um, we came out very forcefully against the yes side mm-hmm. and very forcefully in, in favor of the no side in the campaign. So. 
um, I put that out there. I think my bias comes from a couple of different sources. First of all, I'm a transplanted Albertan. I celebrated my Al Alberta anniversary earlier this year. I've lived in Alberta more than anywhere else, but I'm coming. Congratulations. Come well, thank you. I feel like there should have been a greater celebration, but. Um, We're having it, an election and celebration. I mean, right. election and celebration. Exactly. <laughs> no, but I think coming from a have less province, we have a little bit of a different view on equalization and the value of it. And equalization has played a huge part in my life's journey to Alberta. And I hope to be contributing to conversations like this and contributing to the Alberta economy, uh, which is something that, that we get out of out of equalization. I think also my, my bias comes a bit from my time in, in negotiating um, the last equalization uh, and healthcare deal um, back in, in the Harper years. I was in intergovernmental relations for the province of Alberta and, and saw the very intricate sets of backroom negotiations that needed to go into that and, and the great benefits that Alberta got out of that deal. So I'm, I'm a little, you know, this is this referendum is a little more personal for me, I think, than more, more than other people, because uh, I, I know what we stand to lose. Now, to your question, what is equalization? I mean, at, at its at its core, equalization is both a principle and a program. OK, mm -hmm. so equalization, the principle, which is what we're being asked to vote on in, in the in the referendum, uh, states that in, uh, in the Constitution, um, provincial governments shall have enough resources to provide, quote, comparable uh, levels of public service at comparable rates of taxation. In other words, there's going to be some provinces that have more wealth, like Alberta, that have more provinces, uh, but there's going to be have less provinces that generate less uh, wealth, less revenue. And we don't want them to be, and the people in their jurisdictions to be disadvantaged. They shouldn't have to raise taxes to a level to afford basic public services, but at the same time, they should have the, the ability to provide those public services. So that's the, that's the principle. What uh, Dr. Eric Adams from the U of A is referred to as the sharing principle. We agree that everybody across Canada should have the ability to, to have these kinds of public services at rates of taxation. The, the second bit is the program itself. So the, the equalization program exists really quite independently of the, of the principle. We had equalization before the principle was put in the Constitution in 1982. And even if we were to remove the principle from the Constitution, we'd still have equalization payments flowing from Ottawa out to other other provinces. So equalization flows from the, the central governments, the federal government's um, general revenues out to uh, out to provinces that are below the national average in terms of their revenue generating capacity. So it doesn't flow. And like other federations, it doesn't flow from weaker from stronger provinces to weaker provinces. It flows out of federal general revenue. So to the extent that Albertans pay more in terms of federal tax, and we do because we tend to have higher incomes and our corporations make more money, we pay more into the system. Uh, then we get out in terms of, at least in terms of equalization, because we don't receive it. And it seems to be one of the myths around, I mean, I, I constantly run into this when I speak to people about, about equalization is, I mean, the big myth is that Alberta, the Alberta government writes a check and it goes to Ottawa and Ottawa gives it to another province like Quebec. I mean, Quebec is generally the one you hear hear complaints about when people are complaining about, about the equalization program. So that's, that, that's, that's just not true. That's, it's, Everything's collected through federal taxes, and that's how the program is distributed. Well, that's true. Um, but it's interesting in our in our survey, our most recent survey, only just over half of Albertans knew that that was in fact the case. Right? There's still mm -hmm. this perception out there that the Alberta government can cut off equalization payments if it wants to. And mm -hmm. aside from you know starting up our own revenue generate revenue collection agency, which is on the table, and then collecting federal taxes, which will never be on the table, there's no way that Albertans can cut off the amount of money that they send to Ottawa. 
And typically, how often is the? I mean, you mentioned mentioned uh, in your intro that you were involved in the negotiation process for the last formula. Um, how often typically does the equalization formula get renegotiated or get changed? Well, it has to be renewed every five years. Every five years, okay. Yeah. Um, so whether, whether the formal negotiations take place is is really up to the federal government of the day. I can tell you that finance ministers meet at least twice a year, and in the December meeting, usually there's a discussion around tweaking the equalization formula and Canada Health Transfer, Canada Social Transfer. Those are the big transfers. Um, usually those discussions are fulsome, but most people come to the realization very quickly that once you start trying to make changes to one of those big programs, you're going to have to make changes to the other. And that was really, I think, the biggest um, achievement of, of the Harper government was to create such a balanced deal that nobody, not even, you know, Trudeau, who, who is not a big Harper fan, not even Trudeau wanted to touch this thing when it came up um, for renewal the first time in around 2015. So it speaks to, I think, the intricate nature of, of tweaking with the program and the fact that anytime you want to give more money to one member of Confederation, you usually have to grow the pie first. So you can't simply go in and say, well, Alberta wants a bigger, a bigger cut of, of federal transfers and say it needs to come out of um, you know, the, the money that goes to Quebec or, or to Atlantic Canada currently. That's a non-starter because when we negotiate these things, we have to negotiate through consensus. So what Harper's master stroke was to say, we're going to add an extra billion some odd dollars to federal transfers, and we're going to transfer most of that billion to Alberta for historical re redress um, for, for, for some health and social transfers that had shortchanged us on a per capita basis. So the big risk here, you know, in voting yes in this equalization referendum is we arm Jason Kenney with a mandate to go back and reopen um, this, this set of negotiations. There's a lot to lose, especially considering we're, we don't have a friendly prime minister across the table this time. We have a prime minister who, if anything, tilts to Quebec and would likely undo that extra billion dollars a year that we get in, in healthcare payments. So it's not as straightforward as I think a lot of people think it is. Alberta doesn't just get to dictate what it wants out of these transfers. These are federal transfers. Mm -hmm. And I mean, one of Premier Kenny's, really one of his only talking points lately about the, about the equalization referendum has been that it would provide the Alberta government to provide him with leverage in terms of negotiating. And and when you look at the question that's being asked, when, you know, the, the actual question that Albertans are voting on tomorrow, um, the question is whether Albertans want, whether yes or no, do you want to remove, I think it's section 36.2, uh, of the constitution, which enshrines the program, or which enshrines, not, not correct me for it, does it enshrine the program or the formula? Principle. The not, principle, not okay. <laughs> the principle that, we're, that, that the federal government shall send money to have less provinces effectively. Okay, so so the referendum question is yes or no, do you want this to be removed from the, from the, uh, from the constitution? Now, this is a non-binding referendum. Obviously, if Albertans vote, it's not going to, I mean, you know, Ottawa is not going to say, okay, I guess we have to remove this. The rest of Canada is not going to say, okay, I guess we have to remove this. And, and I mean, I guess, could, could you comment on just wh why did they word, word it that way? Because the, the question of the, the question is not whether Albertans want to reform the system or change it in any way. It's if they want to remove that, re simply remove it from the constitution. Yeah. And the yes side has all but admitted at this point that we should just look beyond the question because it's not the question that they really wanted to ask. But they're unfortunately under some misguided constitutional advice that by asking a constitutional question and having Albertans come back with a clear, clear statement, a clear, strong yes vote, it would somehow oblige the rest of Canada to come to the table to negotiate 
on what Alberta is proposing. Okay, now they're basing this on a, a misread of, of the secession reference. Um, I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole here, but their argument is that the Supreme Court said anytime a province comes forward with any amendment to the Constitution, the rest of the, the country is duty bound to negotiate with them on it. Um, most constitutional experts, including those that I, I trust most, um, will tell you that it, it was it was confined just to secession votes. So that's the reason why they've crammed the Constitution into this question. But if you ask the yes side, they'll tell you, no, this isn't a, a, about removing it from the Constitution at all. It's about, as you said, gaining leverage for negotiations of something. And we know that this is something to do with a fair deal. Okay, Some people are saying it's all about reforming the equalization formula. Okay, fair enough. Um, but this, to this point of leverage, uh, it's important to note that it doesn't really matter how much you think you have as leverage in a negotiation. It's what everybody else around the table thinks you have. And so I think what folks that are on the yes side are, are neglecting to, to, to remember, or to at least counsel Albertans on, is that this will ultimately end up in a series of negotiations where Alberta's reputation, Alberta's position, uh, is going to be at, at the forefront. So how does the rest of Canada take this referendum here in Alberta? Well, for the first thing they're going to be looking at is how big was the yes vote? And according to the Premier's own words, 70 to 80% of Albertans were in favor of removing equalization from the Constitution way back in October 2019 when this whole thing started. And if so if we're less than 70% at this point, it, it suggests that, that some of that support has withered away and momentum's going in the other direction. The bigger variable here, though, is turnout, mm -hmm. right? So historically, Albertans don't tend to turn out very often in municipal elections. 40% is kind of a high watermark, although interesting, and we'll come back to this, Calgary does have higher levels of turnout than Edmonton. So there can be some regional differentials there. But if the rest of Canada looks and sees half, fewer than half of Albertans showed up to vote and just over half of them voted yes, what kind of hand does that give the premier when he, when he walks to the table, right? He's, he's walking there with a glass half empty, effectively. Um, which is not a great way to start off a negotiation. And I don't think it's any secret that Jason Kenney hasn't really earned a reputation as being a great negotiator. I mean, in line three negotiations, he decided to call the, the um, Michigan governor brain dead, right? We've seen what he did with KXL. We've seen what he's done with round after round of public sector bargaining ploys with big, huge, boisterous bluffs that turn into nothing, right? So I think he's earned a reputation, if anything, for being all hat, no cattle. And that's, that's what the yes side is asking us to send to the table in Ottawa to renegotiate these transfers, where we could very well end up uh, worse off than where we began. And Jason Kenney's absence from this referendum campaign is also something that, that I think is notable. I mean, I think we've seen two polls that have come out recently that have shown him with 22% approval, which is dismal, abysmal for, for an Alberta premier. I mean, Alberta, you know, Alberta, Albertans tend to put their premiers through the meat grinder, but this is, you know, is not not in a strong position with Albertans right now, and um, seeing how this was his this was his big pitch to Albertans after the 2019 election, um, I mean it is surprising. I mean it's not surprising because he's because he, his popularity has dropped, um, but it is surprising that he's basically been totally absent on this. And I mean I, I don't think that he want you know had had his popularity been higher, I'm sure he would have been out campaigning for it. But um, you know now it seems that he's. He's just totally absent from it. It's very strange. Well, we're in a position where if the yes, if sorry, if the no side gains gains more than twenty five percent of the vote, one interpretation of that is that equalization is more popular than the premier of Alberta. You know, <laughs> yeah, which is shocking to me.
Um, I mean, but to, 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 to the broader point, this, this, we're in a situation now where that, that's what the rest of Canada is seeing. And Albertans, if they give uh, the government a strong yes vote, are basically giving the premier a free ticket out of Dodge. Right? This is their opportunity now to turn the page, start talking about this nebulous free deal, a fair deal, sorry, free deal, fair deal uh, in the rest <laughs> of the country. He can, you know, uh, uh, schlep around uh, Ottawa trying to convince federal public servants and, and the prime minister to give him some something uh, more in terms of federal transfers. And in the meantime, you know, the rest of us are stuck here wondering if this government's going to be accountable for the things that it's done so far in the pandemic and the things that it's planning to do for in terms of economic recovery. So the overall timing of this is just it, it couldn't be worse. But they started this process again in October 2019. That's kind of when the train left the station right after the federal election. Uh, if you'll remember back, um, equal sorry separation in the province, separatism mm -hmm. reached an all time high at about 30 percent, according to our polling. And this equal, equalization referendum was seen as a means of trying to provide a safety valve, right, for allow people to air their grievances, kind of festivist referendum, right, air your grievances, and hopefully this won't spin off, spin off the road down to separatism. Um, a lot has happened since then, obviously, not just the pandemic, but the premier's own personal popularity, the point where now you said, as you're right, um, even though they granted themselves the ability to campaign for one side of a referendum, they had to change legislation to allow themselves as government people to, to campaign on one side, they haven't taken it up on him. We let, let Bill, Bill Buick is trying his best to, with the Fairness Alberta team to put out some reasoned arguments, but even they now have to say, if we hear Professor Ted Morton, for example, going around saying, this isn't about Jason Kenney, this is about way more than Jason Kenney. It's about our long-term future in negotiating. Well, um, <laughs> Albertans are left to add, as, you know, answer the question that they see in front of them, which is, do we want to get rid of the sharing principle? And more than that, do we want to empower um, you know, the Kenny government with the ability to renegotiate these things. And I think for most people, that, that would be at least a difficult question to answer. Well, it's certainly not. It certainly doesn't seem like it's a priority for, for most Albertans right now. I mean, I think you're right. After the 2019 federal election, I mean, we had this kind of wave of Wexit mania where there was a lot of media attention around these kind of various separatist groups that were traveling around holding town halls. And there were a lot of people who showed up to the town halls and a lot of people who were unhappy with the results of the 2019 election. But even... I mean, it's it's a totally different world right now. I mean, going through the pandemic, the the drop in popularity of of, of Premier Kenny and the UCP, um, we just had a Liberal government federally reelected with a smaller popular vote than it did in 2019, and I don't see the same type of backlash here in Alberta at all. Like it's it's night and day in terms yeah. of of how people how people are reacting to that. I mean, I'm not I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of people who are still unhappy with it, but you know, we're not seeing town halls with people waving separatist flags in the same way that we did after the after the 2019 election. And I guess my question is that, like, what, and I, I was on um, the RIT podcast with Eric Grenier talking about the municipal elections, and we talked a bit about the equalization referendum, and he had a good question, Eric had a good question about what's next, like, what's what comes after this? Because, I mean, when you talk about, like, Quebec, there's been a, over the past 40, 50 years, there's been a vibrant sovereignty movement of our vibrant separatist movement they've held referendums there's always been that kind of threat looming um but if if this referendum passes and you know the rest of canada isn't really interested in in renegotiating this in a way that satisfies 
um, conservative politicians or different groups here in Alberta? Like, what's what 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 is Alberta's next leverage? Like, I mean, are we going to say we're going to leave? Like, because there's no mainstream separatist movement in this province. I mean, we have groups that kind of pop up and disappear and are you know are always kind of exist on the fringes. But I just can't see him. I can't see a uh, any of our mainstream parties really taking uh, taking a separatist uh, um, position. No, and, and separatism is back up again a bit. It's up to about 20% according to our most recent poll earlier this month. So it's it's higher than it was during the pandemic at about 10 to 12%, but it's still not where it was before, as you said. It was 30, 30% uh, following the 2019 federal election. So what happens next? Like, what, what is the next step? Um, to be crystal clear, the Kenny government has not signaled what it's going to be asking the rest of Canada for beyond simply, quote, quote unquote, a fair deal. We heard some folks with these different yes camps saying it's all about changing the equalization formula and so on. But again, I come back with, you're going to have to, you're going to have to trade something off for that. We're not clear on what Alberta is willing to give up. Right. Um, we did get a little bit of a hint in, some, in a fundraising email from the UCP to its members where it said, you should go out and vote yes in this equalization referendum because equalization is the first in a series of quote dominoes to fall when it comes to Fiscal federalism. Now that dominoes, what that means mean there's going to be something else that comes next, right? So there obviously are there obviously is some kind of grander plan, but there is no end game that they've announced, which as you said, strategically is a mistake compared to what Quebec usually does. I have a strong suspicion, um, and I've said I've been on the record on this when the fair deal was announced back in October 2019. I have a strong suspicion that those next dominoes involve um, withdrawing from the Canada pension plan. I think they also involve withdrawing from the RCMP agreement and quite frank, quite possibly uh, setting up our own uh, Alberta revenue agency. Now, um, this is where my co-author in that no piece on CBC News, Ken Bosenkuhl and I, this is where we part ways because I, I disagree with his position on those issues. He was the original author or co-author of the firewall letter that proposed these measures. To we like to call it the firewall manifesto on this. <laughs> um, but um so, but I, I have a strong sense that this equalization referendum is designed to fail, right? This is designed for the Alberta government to go out, lead with its chin, get punched by the rest of Canada, and then say, well, look, we tried. They don't want to deal with us. So now we're going to trot out, you know, the 1990s, early 2000s greatest hits with, with first of all, I think a referendum on removing ourselves from the Canada pension plan. Now, um, I'm not going to defend Ken's, Ken's case at all, but where I do feel a bit bad for, for folks that did you know, back those policy initiatives then and still do now is that now we're having this debate with, with almost a gun to our heads, as opposed to having a serious policy debate about whether an Alberta pension plan is actually good for Albertans, right? But we're going to be having another referendum, I strongly suspect, if Kenny's still in power by then, by the, in the 2023 Alberta, um, Alberta provincial election, that'll have one of those, if not several of those initiatives on the table. I think that's the end game, okay? What worries me more than any of that is that I'm not sure once those dominoes start to fall, they can stop it there because none of those things, in my view, will help to resurrect the Alberta economy. And none of those things will help address the root cause of populism in this province, which is that there's a sense that a lot of people are falling behind. You and I have talked about this in your podcast before. Mm -hmm. So what it's doing is it's escalating demands and creating these policy initiatives that will never actually solve the root of the problem. And that, to me, is the clearest path to a separation vote. And I'm not saying that's happening before 2023, but it's certainly setting us down that path. And the beginning of that fork in the road is this equalization referendum. 
And that, but I mean, a lot of that will assume that they get a strong mandate from the equalization referendum. I mean, that's kind of one of the bump, one of the bumps in the road. Um, I mean, if, if it's not, I mean, I, I, cause I would have thought that, you know, a year ago or two years ago, if you were to have a hold of, held a referendum on equalization, that getting 70 or 80% should have been a slam dunk. It would have been a slam dunk um, just because of public opinion about how people feel about equalization. Um, what people know how Albertans understand equalization, but um, I wonder about when Premier Kenny says fifty percent plus one is enough. Uh, you know, like a, a, just a simple majority is enough to have a mandate to uh, to bring this referendum, to bring this question to to the rest of Canada. I mean, I, I wonder. I mean, it's a bit of managing expectations. I wonder if it's a bit of managing expectations that you know you set your expectations low and the and the uh, you know the support will be higher. But then I see some polling and I think that you know well it looks like you know Albertans are not as uh you know haven't really bought into it they're not totally they don't really understand it and there's there's seems to be at least when you when you look at the the polling comparing edmonton and calgary i mean there's this is a for a lot of people it's a referendum on jason kenny well and this and that'll be key right and janet brown said this on wesson earlier this week too right is that historically edmontonians have turned out significantly less than calgarians so Calgary's recent mayoral elections, when they've been competitive or not, have been in the 50% range. Edmonton's, mm-hmm. even when Iveson uh, was first elected, it was a you know a jump ball election in that case with no incumbent. We were still in the 30s. Mm-hmm. So if the yes vote um, is concentrated more in, in Edmonton, uh, sorry, in Calgary than in Edmonton, and the no votes ca- concentrated here in Edmonton and they don't show up, that could have major implications for the overall pro- province-wide vote. But, but to, to your point about whether 50% plus one is, is enough for leverage, it really doesn't matter what the premier thinks is leverage. Once this vote is, is tallied and, you know, he jumps on his plane to head to Ottawa, everybody else is going to be in the rest of Canada is going to be doing the math on this. And again, it's going to be coming down to how much momentum, how much credibility does the premier have? How much of a mandate does he carry with him to Ottawa when fewer than half of Albertans show up to vote? Mm-hmm. And I mean, if, if you, if you, if you, I mean, obviously, you know, re, they say reopening the constitution is not the point of this, even though that's the question that's being asked. Um, you know, that, that's the actual question. That's the actual mandate. They're they, literally they, they, telling you, Dave, not to read the question. No, I'm, I'm it not. It's so I'm bizarre. Not, it's so bizarre. Read, read the Calgary Sun editorials for yourself. They're telling you not to take the question literally. And, and uh, so they say that. And then on the other hand, they're saying, but we have a clear question. Uh, so, so we can trip this secession reference, you know, tripwire that requires everybody to negotiate with us. But they're going to negotiate with us on the Constitution, but we don't want to talk about the Constitution. I mean, this it's 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 sad in in a way that that some smart folks have painted themselves into their their own corner on this. But uh, you know, the people I talk to say, I'm going to look at the question. I'm going to vote on the question. Mm-hmm. Do I want to share wealth in in the Federation? That's the question. And, and to that point, I'll, I'll, I'll note, like a lot of people think that it's Western alienation that's driving the yes vote on this thing. Our, our research shows it's just as much about regionalism uh, as it is about um, position on the left-right spectrum. There are a lot of Albertans that equate equalization with welfare, right? And, and they believe that any kind of redistribution of wealth from wealthy folks, whether they be a province or an individual person or a corporation to people that have less, that are seen as being less deserving, that's a bad thing. So people, the further right you go on the spectrum in this province, the more supported they get of the S vote. 
The Dave Berta Podcast is brought to you this week by High Level Hip Hop. CJSR presents High Level Hip Hop. It's a deep dive into Edmonton's hip hop scene and the artists helping to shape it. The show takes a unique approach to introducing listeners to the OGs and young bloods of Edmonton's hip hop scene. The show is aimed at those who love local music but might not have had a chance to fall in love with the city's surprisingly diverse hip hop scene. Each episode features an interview with a local artist, plus a fresh track they recorded at CJSR. Check out episodes with Arlo Maverick, Please Be Nice, and more throughout the season. High Level Hip Hop is produced by CJSR, Edmonton's campus and community radio station. Download it wherever you find podcasts at highlevelhiphop.transistor.fm. The Daybird Podcast is also brought to you this week by the Future of Podcast. Hosted by Todd Hirsch, ATB Financial's Vice President and Chief Economist, the Future of Podcast has launched its third season by connecting with industry leaders to uncover what's on the horizon for the things that mean the most to you. The Future of Podcast promises to give you insights to help navigate what is often an uncertain future. Explore how our economy and communities can not only brace for change, but embrace the opportunity it creates. Subscribe to The Future Of in the Apple Store, Google Play, Spotify, and everywhere podcasts are found. And connect with us at atb.com slash thefutureof. Can you walk me through the process, uh, walk our listeners through the process of, and I mean, we've, we've already said, like, they don't want us to pay attention to the question, but... If Section 36.2 were removed from the Constitution, or what, what is the process to remove a section from the Constitution? Like, just mechanically speaking, like process speaking, how would that, who initiates this kind of process? Could, could a premier propose it? And, you know, and then that would start the process? Could a senator start it? Could a, just a me- me- member of the House of Commons start it? No, so uh, one legislature across Canada, so it could be a provincial legislative assembly like here in Alberta or Parliament uh, would have to pass a resolution saying here, and this resolution would state, we are going to remove this section from the Constitution. And then within a three-year period, um, enough provincial legislatures and parliament would have to pass that resolution for that constitutional amendment to be changed. So in that process, due to there, I'm not going to go down this, (laughs) another rabbit hole here with you. There's a 750 rule that some Canadians may be familiar with. It says seven provinces with 50% of Canada's population would have to approve general amendments like this one to the constitution. Mm -hmm. But there's another piece of federal legislation that actually gives Alberta, BC, um, effective vetoes over, over this whole process. So essentially you're going to have to have probably close to eight or nine out of 10 provinces plus parliament, both houses approve this thing before we can change the constitution. I don't have to remind you that half of those uh, those provinces that are required to sign on are have less provinces that currently receive equalization. So the yes side has already conceded this point that this is not actually going to come to fruition, but it's it's a way to get everyone's attention and oblige everyone else to come to the table to negotiate the constitution. That's what this is about. It's not about changing the constitution. They've, they've said that. It's not my interpretation. They have said that. Okay. <laughs> I feel like uh, I should charge you tuition. That's like, that's like a whole, uh, <laughs> a whole yeah. class. No, <laughs> well, well, yeah. Boil down to two minutes. Well, uh, we, uh, we, we, uh, we, we don't have any money to pay you, but we pay you in gratitude and, and appreciation. And, uh, 
and likes on Twitter, I guess, is the uh, is is our currency. Um, yeah. So okay. So we've done that's a, that's a pretty good dive into equalization and uh, and the referendum. We're gonna we're gonna uh, come back to a couple questions some of, some of our listeners have um, after we uh, we talk about uh, the Senate nominee election. So Alberta is holding a Senate nominee election. Um, this is our fifth Senate nominee election that we've had um, since 1989. It is a uniquely Alberta um, uh, election. It's we're, we, we don't actually, I mean, you hear this a lot. We don't actually elect senators and we're not actually electing senators. We're electing a list of nominees that the premier will then send to the prime minister for recommendation for appointment to the Senate. Um, so the prime minister still the the prime minister has always appointed senators. Right now, they're the federal liberals. A number of years ago, set up a new process, so it's not just the prime minister appointing. There's a application process. I believe there's a committee. There's an interview process, and there's there's more of a of a structure to kind of keep it more independent. You see less party bagmen and less party party officials being appointed to the Senate, less former members of parliament and that kind of thing, uh, less of a less of a patronage partisan patronage. Um, uh, machine than uh, than existed before. Um, so I guess what 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 are your thoughts on uh, on this uh, this this Senate election we're having now um, in the in the, during this municipal election? Yeah, I mean we we, we make light of it um, that it's it's not as you said you aren't directly we aren't directly electing people to represent Alberta, so it doesn't get a lot of attention in the media. I remember doing a media study of the two thousand and four. Uh, election when I was in grad school and the media, I think in that case, television and print media devoted a total of four stories over the course of the provincial campaign to that to that election. Wow. So it doesn't get a lot of attention. I think uh, usually partisanship, as you said, party party labels play a bigger role in the election because those are listed next to people's names and Albertans are being asked to select up to three people. So you're not just marking one X when you go there, you're marking up to three X's for people. And usually partisanship plays a big cue there. So you'll look the CPC, the Conservative Party of Canada has three candidates. The People's Party of Canada has three candidates. And there's a slew of independents that are there. I know um, people ask, well, why doesn't the NDP have candidates there? And, and historically, um, the federal NDP and the provincial NDP have said, have been in favor of abolishing the Senate altogether. So they don't, they don't buy the premise of the whole exercise. Um, the Liberals just never run candidates, as far as I can remember, anyway. They, they ran one in, um, the Liberals only participated in one of the elections in 1989. Um, they had Bill, Bill Code, who was a lawyer and actually the um, led the investigation, the public inquiry into the principal group, uh, the collapse of the principal group, which is a big financial scandal here in Alberta in the 1980s. And he was the he was the Liberal candidate and he placed second. And he actually placed first in Edmonton years, years ago. And I have no idea what I did with it. But years ago, I had the official report of the 1989 Senate election, the elections Alberta results uh, that went through like each riding and each, um, even though it was held during the provincial election, I think they broke it down by, I think they might've broken it down by riding, a provincial riding. Um, uh, and it showed, yeah, the liberals placed, who were riding high in Edmonton anyway, during the time placed placed first, uh, the candidate placed first in Edmonton. And then the, the conservative, the progressive conservative candidate, uh, Burt Brown, who, ran th in three of our Senate nominee elections in Alberta, actually placed third. Um, and then Stan Waters, who was the Reform Party candidate, uh, placed first and, and was uh, eventually appointed to, to the Senate by 
Prime Minister Brian Mulroney, but it really was a boost. One of like one of the, I think it was probably the second big boost that the Reform Party got exactly. um, after the election of or the by-election win that Deb Gray had in, in 1988 in uh, in uh, in Beaver River. And, um, and that, that's a bit of a pattern with these things, right? So if you remember back to the 2012 Senate elections, that was a time where we there wasn't federal parties that were contesting; it was actually provincial parties that time. Mm -hmm. And the Wild Rose Alliance got a big boost, even though they didn't didn't place top three. They actually were able to to use that as a platform to to fundraise and 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 really you know put their name on the map when it come when it came to especially rural ridings. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, at the, at the end of the day, there's there's one Senate vacancy left in Alberta right now, and when Doug Black uh, re, uh, retires at the end of this month, there'll be two. Prime Minister has said um, anybody who wants to be a senator in Alberta is welcome to apply and. Uh, so if, you know, as we all suspect, the Conservative Party of Canada slate is, is elected, they'll be more than welcome to apply through the, the independent process. I'm not sure if, whether any of them will. Um, I think but, I think I think there are two or three of the candidates who've said they've that the independent candidates who've said they've actually applied through oh, the yeah. through the Senate. I think uh, uh, Dr. Karina Pillay and Jeff Nielsen and then another another one of the candidates said that they'd, they'd filed their their application through the formal process, but they wanted to participate in the in the election as well. So I, I, you know, I'll, I'll be keeping my eye on those independent candidates. I know progressives seem to be lining up uh, behind Duncan Kinney and, and you know, Jet Thunder. I've heard Chad Jet Thunder is also getting getting some popularity. The, the, the Thunderdome. Right. <laughs> um, we'll see those. I'm also keeping my eye on the PPC vote because this is an opportunity, just like reform before in, in 1989 and and Wild Rose in 2012 or in 2012, an opportunity for them to to use this to fundraise heading into the next federal election. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've always I thought it was a, always kind of a missed opportunity for the for the Liberals and the NDP not to participate, even if they didn't believe in the process or didn't, you know, as, or in the NDP's case, believe that the Senate should be abolished. You, you know, simply running a candidate for the uh, the opportunity to organize and use the Senate election as a platform for your issues and a platform for your party. It seems it, it's always seemed like a bit of a missed opportunity. Um, even though this, even though the Senate elections don't get a lot of attention, uh, you know the same amount of attention that a provincial or a municipal election that's being held at the same time usually get. Yeah, I think I think this time around though, it, it would be really counter narrative. The the NDP seems to be setting themselves up to say in twenty twenty three, we didn't play the the you know the song and games that that the UCP wanted us to with the equalization referendum. They've been nowhere on that. Um, mm -hmm. Why do you why do you think that is? I mean, yeah, we haven't heard anything from Rachel Notley on yeah. on these referendums. Well, apparently she made a statement back in June that I wasn't aware of, but they've been, okay. been nowhere on it. And um, you know, I drew the ire of some folks that say, "Well, obviously, electorally, why would you weigh into this?" I think as Max Fawcett said, "It's like putting your hand in a wood chipper. Why would you? There's nothing to win from it." Um, certainly, I, I get it. I, I understand the electoral calculation. Let, as Andrew Leach said, you know, let let the premier um, fall on his own petard. Don't get in the middle between him and his petard. But um, I just, I guess that that's that's the the stage of maturity the provincial NDP has gotten to. I guess that's one positive way of looking at it. If you're a new Democrat, that they actually do feel like um, get, regaining power is more important than, than than engaging in what I would argue is a pretty fundamental question about our Canadian Constitution. Um, but I mean, the, the fact the matter fact of the matter is it, it just left. No, no side in the equalization referendum. No organized no side aside from a handful of academics, which really only fed feeds into the you know the populist narrative that <laughs> all these ivory tower geeks are the ones that want to hold us back, right? So I don't know. I I think when history books are written, if this ends up being an important event in Alberta history, people will be asking, well, where was the NDP on this? Mm -hmm.
And and there's been no uh, like I mean the, the federal I haven't seen much from the from the federal from the federal parties really involved in this either. I mean aside from the Senate the Senate election, which is you know you have two conservative endorsed candidates and and you have presumably conservative MPs who are who are supporting and campaigning for those campaigning for those candidates. Um, like I haven't heard really much from the from the federal conservatives on the equalization uh, equalization uh, referendum either. You raise an excellent point, Dave. That's I said we'd be looking to the rest of Canada for their reaction to the outcome of this referendum. And I'll be looking not just to the prime minister. He's been pretty, he's got his one-liners down already. He said, somebody should ask Jason Kenney what, what problem he has with his own formula. He was there with me <laughs> last time. But really putting Aaron O'Toole in, in, a, in a tough spot, mm -hmm. right? Because honestly, and Ken Bozenkul has made this case better than I ever could. If you really want to make changes, to the equalization formula, it starts within the federal government, and it's going to have to be a conservative government if you want Alberta to, Alberta's interests to be to be um, to be realized. So all eyes will be on Aaron um, to see how he he reacts to this. Right, this is a this is a person who's already said, you know, my focus is on suburban uh, ridings, particularly in Ontario. So coming out forcefully and standing behind Alberta in this case is not going to win him much support there. Um, mm -hmm. And if they do have a plan in Quebec, I'm not sure whether they do still hold up hopes of, of, of winning seats there, then he has to kind of ignore the results of this referendum altogether, which only fuels Western conservatives' um, suspicions of him being some, you know, Laurentian elite centrist. Mm -hmm. And it seems that, I mean, even, you know, we'll, we'll watch to see what Aaron O'Toole does, but um, I mean, looking at looking at the future of Premier Jason Kenney, and I mean, I wonder if this, I mean, this is might be might just might have just been a vanity project that disappears if Premier Kenney isn't Premier in six months, and and, and another UCP leader uh, is elected, and I mean, the, the UCP might want to put this all behind them, and you know, look forward to uh, to rebranding and and uh, and trying to win re-election in 2023 or 2022 if they decide decide to go early. That's the other thing is we could have a you know, we could have an early provincial election, depending on on uh, on what uh, what the future of Premier Kenny uh, looks like. Well, I mean, if it ends up being Brian Jean that replaces Jason Kenny, don't forget this whole thing was Brian's idea. That's right. Yeah, that was uh, from the UCP leadership race. Yeah, yeah. Um, listener questions. We got we got a bunch of listener questions about equalization. I, I threw the uh, through the uh, the. The question out there and and our listeners have questions so um are you up to answering a few questions about equalization jared do i do i is it an open book test uh you can <laughs> you know you got a lot of books behind you i see i do yeah absolutely absolutely all right i think it's a test you'll you'll probably pass with flying colors yeah i think I'll, I'll i think you've best. i think you've already proven you your aptitude in uh in uh in the uh, the topic under the topic of equalization, <laughs> oh, I'll do my best. All right, I'm I'm going to read them out to you, and you can both take a swing at them. Our first one comes from Notebook Nick, who asks, "What can we do to ensure that Albertans are educated about how equalization actually works?" What are your thoughts on this, Jared? Um, I think probably the biggest misconception is that equalization. Um, is the only federal transfer, right? I think where, where we should start with is that equalization is one among many and that once we start renegotiating one part of those fiscal transfers, health transfers get involved, social transfers get involved, your university funding, your hospital funding, all that stuff is involved in this. 
Um, and I think that's the first key is to understand that equalization is not just a symbol of Alberta's, you know, unfair treatment at the hands of the rest of Canada. Um, you know, at a basic level, I would love to see this introduced into the social studies curriculum um, in, in, in high school. Um, but uh, that, that may be asking too much. I know, I know uh, we asked it in our, in our survey, we asked us an eight point quiz. Right. We asked Albertans for some pretty fundamental questions about equalization and only and the average score of that eight point quiz was three point one and a majority of people failed. Maybe just starting with that quiz right, and having those eight points uh, drilled into our students before they graduate high school might help. I don't know. Dave, any thoughts on how we can uh, we can teach people about equalization so they know how it actually works? Well, I think there's been a I mean, if you look over the past decade, the past number of decades, I think there's been a concerted effort to convince Albertans and to make Albertans believe that equalization works in a certain way. And I mean, there are political reasons behind that. There are ideological reasons behind 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 that. Um, so, I mean, I think that, you know, it's not something that that, that will happen overnight, um, but, uh, you know, a concerted effort um, with, you know, with people like uh, like Jared writing you know, writing op-eds and writing columns and and uh, and posting on social media and talking on podcasts like this. I think that's I think that's part of it. I do think that that uh, you know, in, increased civics education is a really real important part of it, and the school system would, would play uh, play an important part of that. And I actually don't know um, if uh, if uh, equalization is taught in uh, in social studies in in, uh, in grade school, but I'd be interested to find out if any teachers are on this uh, or listening to this podcast now. Yeah, just just to point, Adam, just. Let's let's not malign Albertans. Mm -hmm. They're not the only ones that are stupid on this stuff. Daniel Bellon and the folks at McGill have been surveying on this stuff before in other parts of the country. Canadians are immensely confused about how this stuff works. And yeah, politicians, I think, do bear a lot of responsibility for simplifying it. Premier himself and, and the UCP has conflated st fiscal stabilization with equalization, calling stabilization and equalization rebate. So I mean, they're, they're, they're muddying the waters, but it's not just here in Alberta where there are misconceptions, it's everywhere. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. Yeah. Now, Jared, you talked about uh, about the the other other transfers that happened. That's what this next question is about from Kelly Joe Aldworth. Uh, they ask, what about the Canada Health and Social transfer? Do you see that being amended uh, due to social factors like aging population, for example? Yeah. So that that was the, the equalization wasn't the most heated part of the negotiations, at least from what I saw from my perch in. in intergovernmental relations with the province last time around it was actually the health and social health and social transfers so in the end alberta managed to convince the rest of canada in particular the federal government to make health and social transfers available on a per capita basis okay so what that means is provinces would receive the same amount of money for every resident that they had living in their jurisdiction and it comes out to just over fifteen hundred dollars for health care so that ended up um removing what you just mentioned, Adam, removing um, the needs-based component of the health transfer. So when we say needs-based funding, that's another way of saying equalizing because provinces that have greater need when it comes to health and social transfers are usually the ones um, that already are struggling on the revenue side. So the old health and social transfers had built in another layer of equalization that Alberta governments for decades have been trying to get removed. As, as Ralph Klein said famously, I like equalization, but equalization only once. And in 2008, we finally got there where we, we said, 
let's get these health and social transfers back to a per capita basis. So every Canadian, regardless of where they live, at least in the provinces, uh, would receive exactly the same amount of money. Now, in return for that, Alberta had to concede to bolstering equalization, right? To putting it on a sustainable path, linking its growth to, um, you know, to economic growth. And it's ironic now because if you look at the you know Fairness Alberta website that comes out on the yes side of this campaign, they're ripping every part of that deal, right? Without mentioning to Albertans, if we go back and try to undo all this stuff to equalization, we're putting that extra money that we got in health and social transfers at risk. I hope that answers. I think it was Kelly's question, right? I hope that answers the yeah. question. Yeah, I think it did. Anything to add, Dave? I, I have nothing. To, <laughs> nothing more to add. That was a pretty thorough response. Thanks, Jared. Awesome. Our next question comes from Kate Kerber, who asks, if the no side wins, how do we deal with the separatist sentiments that will inevitably gain momentum here in Alberta? Dave, you want to do you want to kick us off with that one? Well, I mean, if, if the no sides no side wins, then that means the majority of Albertans have rejected it. Um, so, I mean, obviously, they'll, they, you know, that would show i mean under you know under premier premier kenny's argument that uh, that the majority of albertans would have would have rejected this i mean there will would there be a backlash yeah i think probably and i think there would be it would also be used as a as an as a an opportunity by groups like the uh you know the wild rose independence party and the the maverick party to to uh to undercut and to appeal to to conservative voters and undercut the ucp i think it would be i think losing this losing this you know at least in the short term would be uh a a huge blow, a devastating blow to Premier Kenny. I think his leadership would be over if if the if they if uh, if the no vote wins. I think it's over. Like, you know, October twenty seventh, he's done. Yeah, I think it's important to note that the separatist movement in Alberta is not monolithic, right? Mm -hmm. So we have Waldo's Independence Party and Paul Hammond going in one direction. We got Drew Barnes and his band of of folks going in another direction. And then there's the there's folks on Twitter that have a bigger following than those two groups <laughs> that are going in another direction. And it's interesting to see them because each each of them is kind of framing a yes vote and a no vote in their favor, right? So a yes vote says, oh, this is the first vote on the series of, this will, this will prove that the rest of Canada doesn't want to work with us when Jason Kenney goes to Ottawa and fails to negotiate. It's proof that the Laurentian consensus is against us and there's nothing else we can do but hold a real referendum on leaving. But I've heard some arguments about on, the, on the no side from these folks that say, well, if the no side wins, it demonstrates that the Laurentian threat is within and, and the only oh, way to do this is to, right is to is jason kenny is is the face of that so we need to depose him and then we'll then we'll start our own rural party and and, and move forward i mean it it, do, it does speak to though that the expectations that have been raised by the yes campaign on this on this um, referendum result because according to our research 56 percent 56 over half of albertans Think that if a yes vote is the result of this referendum, Alberta withdraws from equalization. Over half of Albertans think a yes vote means we withdraw from equalization, leaving aside the fact that we can't withdraw from equalization. It's a federal program, we pay taxes. Okay, what do you do with those folks the day after? You have to go back to them and say, well, this wasn't really about pulling out of equalization, folks. This was about, it wasn't really about constitutional negotiations. It was all about getting a fair deal. So just wait, just wait and we'll get that. And when we don't secure that, then what? So this, 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 
the yes campaign is really setting us up for a series of very hard discussions with hard right separatists in this province that I think is going to drag us through the next election cycle. We all have to cope with that, not just folks on the right. Mm -hmm. Dave, separatists, you, you had a list of, um, of parties that were registered. Oh. Uh, yeah, I'll, a, lot I'll... Of them, a lot of them have separatist sentiment in their titles, I think. I wonder, you know, I, I mean, Jared mentions this being a factor in the next election cycle. Uh, what are you seeing in that list? You know, I, 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 I don't mean to make fun of these, these, these parties or the people organizing these parties, but it is kind of comical. Some of the names are kind of comical. And okay, at any given time, Alberta has, always has a few separatist parties or a few fringe right wing parties that exist. Most of them don't really register on any, any radar or in, in any polling, but they exist on paper. The, you know, the various versions of the Alberta First Party, which is now called the Wild Rose Independence Party, um, you know, the, the Alberta Advantage Party, the Separatist Separation Party of Alberta, which I think was one of the names that the Wild Rose Independence Party was at one point. Um, but on Elections Alberta's website, they have a, a process of when you are organizing a political party, so collecting signatures to register, have your political party registered, which is a hard process to do. I think you have to collect something like 5,000 signatures of registered voters, which is not an easy task to do. Um, so, but there are always th these names that are reserved and, and, and Elections Alberta puts on their website, lists the names that people have reserved because they've indicated they want to organize these parties. So I'm just going to read to you the 11 names that are currently reserved uh, as political parties by Elections Alberta. Okay, they are the Blue Collar Movement of Alberta, the Buffalo Party of Alberta, uh, the Statehood, uh, the Alberta Statehood Party, who I actually met uh, one of one of those uh, one of their supporters at uh, at Alberta Beach over the summer. He was having a Fourth of July uh, celebration in one of the parks, and I went and had a nice chat with him. Um, the Alberta National Party, the Unlock Alberta Party, the Tax Revolt Party of Alberta. The Alberta Patriot Party, Alberta Unity Party, the Common Sense Party of Alberta, the Alberta Influence Party, uh, and the Alberta First Independence Coalition Party. So I think we can sense a bit of a theme in terms of what uh, what uh, what kind of uh, the political leanings of some of the people who might be might be organizing these uh, some of these smaller political parties. Sorry, go ahead, Jared. I was going to say it's it's not just separation that that's animating them now. It, it's it's the anti-vax movement that's really mm -hmm. caught on and, and is really galvanizing a lot of these folks. And um, I I'm I'm I may have been laughing at some of the names, but I'm I'm definitely not dismissing this movement if for no mm -hmm. other reason than I have family members that are out there stumping for some of these parties. And these are not these are not you know stupid people. Um, mm -hmm. I think that they have been persuaded. Um, by generations of conservative politicians in this province that if you don't get your own way, you need to pack your bags and, and head home and and take the rest of us with us, I, I guess. Um, it, it, it is a problem, and this is not going to be solved by, you know, deposing Jason Kenney or even getting rid of the UCP in 2023. The problem is still going to be around there. And, it, and as we've seen, it extends to other conspiracy theories like anti-vaxxers, right? Mm -hmm. Well, the, the, yeah. so the, the during the federal election, the People's Party really—I mean, they were they were running an anti-vaxxer COVID conspiracy theory campaign. I mean, you saw, Cam. I mean, not just not just what Maxine Bernier was saying at his at his rallies that he was, he was holding. I mean, he was basically the only party leader who was holding rallies, and he was holding a lot of them here in Alberta. Um, but you'd see election signs, lawn signs that would say, you know, no, no vaccine mandate, no vaccine passports. Would you know they were they were really focusing on the, on 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 that. Um, 
What do you think about uh, Drew Barnes and his uh, him publicly musing? Drew Barnes, who's the former UCP MLA for 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 well, he's currently the NMLA for Cypress Medicine Hat, um, but was ejected from the UCP caucus in June. He's been musing, and it was a, there was a CBC article about it about starting a his own rural party, rural based party. And really, I think what he was talking about is a party that didn't contest, wouldn't contest seats in Calgary and Edmonton. I mean, there's a lot of other big urban areas outside of outside of those cities, including the the sixth largest city in Alberta, which is half of what he represents in Medicine Hat. Like, do you think there's traction for like in terms of like some of the 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 opinion polling that you look at from rural Alberta? Is there really a like a distinct and enough? Do you think there would be enough support for like a dis, like distinct political opinion for a distinct uh, political party just outside the, the cities? It, it's it's so tough to tell in the middle of an election cycle, although, as you suggested, we could have an election any day now, right? Um, but I think the closer you get to an election, the more the fear of a new democratic government will start to take over in some of these places. And they'll go, what's the best way we can keep Rachel Notley from governing the province again? Mm -hmm. that, that's And this is the thing that I know Dr. Melanie Thomas has done research in this in the past. Um, and it's not so much a pro big C conservative or even ideologically conservative um, draw for some of these politicians in these areas and these parties. It's an animosity towards socialism or what they see as socialism, or what they see as the new democratic party. It's an anti-partisanship that really animates a lot of these folks. And they're going to go not necessarily to vote for, you know, the party that they think best represents them, but the party that's best poised to keep the new Democrats from forming government. So it sounds very, sounds very, um, uh, very social credit, like very, you know, you, you, yeah. you hear the same things going back to the 1930s, 1940s and 50s. It was very much a, um, the narrative was to keep the socialists out of, out of, uh, out of government. Well, and if you think about it from a branding perspective, the fact that, that Albertans have seen so many different party brands on the right since, you know, the 1990s, there have been so many parties uh, at the federal and provincial level that nobody can really get attached to them. But they do know one constant presence is there, and it's an it's an ominous one in their minds. It's it's the New Democrats. So yeah, I think there's a long history of that in Western Canada in general. I, I think we have one more question from our listeners, uh, Adam. Yeah, that's right. This one's from Tom. It's our last one, and Tom asks, well, "What was the reason for the constitutionally meaningless question on the ballot? Was it to drive out a certain subset of voters in hopes of electing more UCP-friendly local governments?" Jared, what do you think? That's that was that's one of the leading theories of why of why they put it on the ballot when they announced it in, in 2019. I think another one was genuine fear of the separatist cause uh, in in the aftermath of the 2019 federal election. I talked with uh, several high ranking UCP officials at that time. They were worried about what about controlling uh, that movement in the province because they were seeing what we were seeing. About a third of Albertans were willing to separate at that time. So I, I think that part of it, the timing was putting it with the municipal elections probably was and was motivated by trying to pull up more small C conservatives to elect mayors and councillors and school board trustees. But the fact of holding it at all, I think, was animated more by by a hope to keep the separatist cause in, in check. Dave, what do you think? Any, any difference of opinion there? No, I mean, I think I, I, I think it's important to recognize that when the decisions were made to have to hold this referendum and when you know back two years ago when there was a lot of discussion when when the ucp was making changes um to the elect the, the local authorities um local authorities election act and the municipal election finance uh, rules there was a lot of discussion and a lot of speculation around 
the UCP um, trying to you know, trying to get more, you know, bend the rules to try to get more conservative, more UCP friendly uh, candidates nominated. So I think that's that, that or pardon me, elected in the, in the municipal election where you know in a lot of cases Liberals and New Democrats do you know in some areas of the province do quite well municipally and they don't necessarily do as well as well um, uh, provincially or, or or federally. I don't think that when when the UCP was making these changes and when just these discussions were happening, I don't think anybody could have anticipated the situation that the government would be in now. No one anticipated COVID at that point. This was this was 2019. No one anticipated that uh, that the premier would be at a 22% approval. He was at 60 some percent approval at that point. He was very popular. He had, he had a, a lot of support, a lot of political capital after the 2019 election. His party had won a big majority, convincing majority. Um, that uh, that seems to have mostly evaporated in the in the uh, in the two years since. Um, so I think the UCP is in is in a totally different situation, and conservatives are in a very different situation. I mean, even looking at the federal election, the federal conservatives, I mean, their vote dropped. There, a lot of conservatives stayed home during the federal election and, and didn't show up. Um, and New Democrats did did well. They boosted their their vote across the province to I think a record high province-wide. They elected two MPs. The Liberals, uh, I don't see, think they saw their vote decline too much. I think it was pretty much pretty much status quo, but they were able to, to gain back two seats. So, um, I mean, I think things are a lot more turbulent for Conservatives in, in Alberta right now than they would have, would have anticipated. And I think that two years ago, they'd probably, there were a lot of Conservative activists who had hoped that they would be able to make, you know, focus on the municipal election and make gains in the municipal election. I just don't think that's really where their heads are right now, because there's all this other stuff that's going on. Well, thanks for those answers, uh, fellas, and thank you to everyone who submitted a question on this uh, fascinating, I want to say, uh, election. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. We we uh, we we, uh, we had a great discussion today. Uh, before we uh, before we we uh, we sign off, is there anything else that uh, that you'd like to leave with our listeners, Jared? No, just just to say, I, I hope um, folks go out and vote. Um, if we've seen anything over the last couple of years, it's it's that local elected officials have a lot of authority over our lives. And in some cases, they have a lot to say about our, our, our health, right? And the health of our children, if you're voting for school trustees. So take the time, um, do your research, as they say, um, and, and, and find some folks that not only represent your values, but you can honestly see making good decisions on behalf of us, because goodness knows what kinds of decisions they're going to be faced with over the next couple of years. Absolutely. I 100% agree. Thank you very much, Dr. Jared Wesley, for joining us on the podcast today. Uh, it's, it's always great to talk, talk with you, and, uh, and, uh, and we always appreciate you sharing your, your insight and your, your knowledge about these issues and, and, uh, and helping educate our, our listeners and, uh, and just have some interesting discussion. Um, thanks to everyone who listened and subscribed to the Dave Berta podcast this week. And, of course, a huge thanks to our producer, our talented producer, Adam Rosenhart. For making this podcast sound so great. We could not do it without you, Adam. The Dayberta Podcast is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. Send us your feedback on Twitter or on Instagram or on the Dayberta Facebook page, or you can email us the old-fashioned way at podcast at Thank you so much for listening, and please remember to vote on October 18th.